This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your tour guide, Peter Korchnak. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I'm very interested in travel writing, as a reader, as a traveler, and especially as a travel writer. I'm not talking about guidebooks or travel blogs containing descriptions of locations and instructions how to get there and what to enjoy. I'm talking about the genre of writing in which the author describes places they have visited and their experiences while traveling. The writing about the place and about the traveler visiting it, about making sense of both the place and oneself as the traveler and author. Now, when it comes to travel writing in the Balkans, what you're most likely to find is accounts of travelers from the so-called West, mostly English-speaking countries, documenting their journeys in books published in their homelands. Travel writing about the Balkans. Take a listen to episode 22, Travel Writing About Ex-Yugoslavia, for more on this topic. What's much less known is a significant body of travel writing literature authored by people from the Balkans, including the former Yugoslavia. In fact, Balkan and XU writers have been traveling and living to tell the tales for some 150 years now. There's a lot of travel writing from the region. So what's all this travel writing from the Balkans about? Who are these writers? Where do they travel and what do they have to say about it? And how do they fit into the whole travel writing genre? In today's episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, travel writing from the Balkans. Before we set out, let me introduce you to a few of my traveling companions. Anita from Australia recently listened to the Remembering Yugoslavia podcast on her road trip through the former Yugoslavia. And thanks to the podcast, she discovered a few places to add to her itinerary. Anita and travelers like her have something in common. They support Remembering Yugoslavia not just with kind words, but also with their hard-earned dinars, I mean dollars. Thank you for your contribution, Anita, and thank you, Billy, Roberta, Sebastian, and Simon. And thank you and welcome new Patreon sustainers Mary, Natasha, and Serjan. If you care about the stories you hear on the show, join Anita and other travelers and chip in for the gas or snacks or museum tickets. You don't even have to pause the podcast. Simply go to rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate and contribute today. I've invited two guests to talk about travel writing from the Balkans. Miroslav Karleža was one of the greatest, if not the greatest writer to come out of what's now Croatia. Born in 1893 in Zagreb, he is mostly known for his fiction, in various genres, and essays. He was big in socialist Yugoslavia as well, until his death in 1981. In 1924 and 25, Karleža traveled to the Soviet Union and wrote about the trip in Islet Urusiu, published in 1926. Last year, Sandorf Passage published that book in English translation for the first time as Journey to Russia. Sandorf Passage kindly provided me with a review copy of the book. Purchase your own copy at sandorfpassage.org. That's S-A-N-D-O-R-F passage.org. The book's description says, The sprawling country was still coming to terms with the events of the 1917 revolution and reeling from Lenin's death in January 1924, and the celebrated Croatian writer was there to figure out what it all meant. During this period of profound political and social transition, Karleža opened his senses to train stations, cities, and villages and collected wildly different Russian perspectives on their collective moment in history. Karleža's impressionistic reportage of mass demonstrations and jubilant Orthodox Easter celebrations is informed by his preoccupation with the political, social, and psychological complexities of his environment. The result is a masterfully crafted modernist travelogue that resonates today as much as it did when first published in 1926." Let me give you a little taste of Krleža's dense prose. Halfway through the narrative, Krleža wonderfully expounds on the one sense that gets overlooked the most in travel writing, and why photographs fall way short of capturing reality in any significant depth. Sadness manifests itself in color, smell and sound, and therefore it simply cannot be reflected by the photographic lens. In addition to optical phenomena, the simultaneity of colors, smells and sounds is uncommonly important in the sphere of sadness and gives rise to a certain dejected condition, often as salty as tears, bitter and graphically unrealizable, and is more smell than sound, more color than form, more dream than reality, and more the shadow of an idea than a harshly spoken word. 
You can take 50 photographs of a particular funeral, but not one of them will reflect the intensity born of the smell of the extinguished candle, the putrid aroma of the corpse beneath the silver-black baldachin, or the echo of the first clod of earth when it bangs on the top of the coffin like the final salute to a traveler leaving forever, never to return. Of all secrets, smells are the saddest. The smell of an empty room in the early evening, when the objects are overcome by the dark and the hushed voices of passers-by come from the street. The smell of tanned leather before the rain that blows in from the distance, from a provincial tannery at the end of the city, a burning tire, the damp wood in a pub. All those smells, like sounds, give rise to images in a man and an enchanting reverberation of the music of colors and melancholic and sad music rings in his ears without which life would be gray, just like all dead objects are gray. We'll hear from Kurleja throughout the show. My second guest, Wendy Bracewell, is a recently retired professor of 37 years at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London. You may remember her from a recent Remembering Yugoslavia episode about Yugoslav food. But her major contribution to Balkan scholarship is the study of travel writing from Central and Eastern Europe. She and a team of scholars recently compiled not one but three volumes about it, an anthology of writings, an edited volume of analyses, and an extensive bibliography. She has also written a number of journal articles and book chapters on the subject. The top-line findings? The first is, there's a lot of travel writing from the region Sometimes you get told that the East is silent, that others must speak for it. But if you look at travel writing, that is by no means the case. It's more like, how do you get them to shut up? Um, There's really, really a huge quantity of material there. That huge quantity of material goes in lots of different directions, as you would expect. It covers a huge range of reactions to travel, to the discovery of the self, the discovery of the world. But there is a very interesting tendency in a good proportion of this writing to use travel accounts, and especially travel accounts of Europe, to think about the relationship between Europe and Eastern Europe or Europe and the Balkans. And it can be either a neuralgic relationship, it can be a relationship of superiority to the West, it can be frivolous, it can be serious. And not just thinking about Europe, but also helping to construct it, both as such and as one divided into Western and Eastern Europe, just like writers from the West do. How a Western is writing about the Balkans and people from the Balkans writing about Europe in general, how are they similar and how are they different? There are a lot of similarities that come out of simply the genre of travel writing. So travel writing is something that thrives on difference. You don't travel someplace to describe something that is familiar. You go someplace to describe something that is novel. It thrives on drawing boundaries and crossing boundaries on a very unstable mix, I think, of reporting, of objective observation, and subjective feeling, how that observation makes you react. In some ways, it's, it's useful to look at travel writing as a, as a genre that stretches right across Europe and in, indeed the world. But there are also really very interesting differences. Some of them, I think, are a minor but characteristic. West European travelers go to the Balkans expecting and picking out things that are alien and exotic, right? That's why you go there. But it doesn't work the other way around. People coming from the Balkans and going to the West of Europe, Europe is not unfamiliar territory to most of these travel writers. They're treading very much on already familiar ground. And this is something I think that comes out of travel writing. It's travel not just through places, but also through pre-existing texts. And so our Balkan travelers already know through their education, through their readings of literature, through all sorts of media, what Europe is, what's important there, what there is to see. I think it also works if you're talking about travel to the Orient, if I can use that term, to a point that is farther east than you. Westerners expect the unfamiliar. They have a very clear notion of what the exotic is that they're going to find in the Orient. But quite often when you have people from the Balkans going further east, they expect the exotic, they expect to see something stereotypically oriental, but they end up finding it all too familiar, as though it's something that they know already. And it's not just going to the Levant, say, but also going to places like southern Italy or to Spain, 
which they can often find disconcertingly familiar because of its Eastern characteristics. And you get some really interesting reactions when people do this, whether it's uh, the discovery of something that you might call a Mediterranean Levantine cultural community. These things that we Orientals uh, share in common, or slightly differently, um, because we have a familiarity with the East, say our Balkan travelers, we can exercise a cultural cosmopolitanism that isn't really available to West Europeans for all their sense of, of superiority. These, I think, are fairly minor specificities about Balkan travel writing to the West and also to the East. But there's one really overarching one that I think is interesting and important. And that is that people from the Balkans often go West, not only knowing it already, you know, through education or whatever, but also with a sense of themselves already being known and defined in advance by the people among whom they're traveling. They are seen and they see themselves being seen, often in ways they don't really like or accept. It's a feeling of self-consciousness or defensiveness. That notion of observing and being observed manifests in the most fascinating way in self-Balkanization. They say we're crazy Balkan people, we'll show them how crazy. The films of Emir Kusturica are a good example of this phenomenon in film. I'm always fascinated when I see that going on in the travel accounts. I think you can see it very often in travel accounts of the Balkans, you know, people traveling relatively close to home. Where they talk about the Balkans, where they use that concept, it's not just that they're traveling to Bulgaria or something, they're traveling in the Balkans. And that does something in itself. It constructs the Balkans, you know, in heavy quotation marks, as a, a place, as a recognizable entity. And it's interesting that they usually travel to the Balkans and not to Southeastern Europe. That doesn't, that doesn't seem to me often to exist in Balkan travel writing. They do do this little self-orientalizing act sometimes that you talk about, but not it's not always self-orientalizing. And here maybe I should have a little digression and say they often do that also in traveling in Western Europe in order to benefit from a sort of cultural exoticism. I might as well, you know, play the Balkanite. This is something that, that is really familiar to me. I'm Australian, grew up in California, and now I've spent more than my life in in the UK. But I frequently find myself playing up to cultural stereotypes of Australians. That goes on. But there's also the phenomenon of, you know, the nesting Balkanism or nesting Orientalism that Milica Bakic Haydn identified so so sharply. So you go someplace and you see what you construct as Balkan and interpret it as something to be ashamed of and something that you need to distance yourself from. So that also is a sort of self-balkanizing, but it's projecting it on, on somebody else. Or you use it as an explanation. People are like this, or things like this happen because they're Balkan. So the point is that Balkanism is not solely a Western projection. It's a two-way process. Orientalism, as used here and generally in Balkan studies, is a concept developed and popularized by Edward Said, a Palestinian-American scholar in the late 1970s, whereby scholars, authors, journalists think about, talk about, write about, represent the so-called East, or the Orient, as a separate, distinct place that's foreign, uncivilized, primitive, barbaric, mystical, dangerous, inferior, in opposition to the familiar, civilized, progressive, rational, safe, and superior, quote-unquote, West, or the Occident. It's a discourse that works to perpetuate the dominance and domination of wealthy, powerful West over its colonial East. Nesting Orientalism is a variation of Orientalism, a concept developed by the Serbian-American scholar Milica Bakic Haydn, whereby a culture or country considers as its Oriental, that is, inferior other, the place that's to the East or South of it. In the European Union, this is the Dutch or the Germans orientalizing the Greeks, Northern Italians orientalizing their compatriots from the South, Czechs orientalizing the Slovaks, orientalizing the Romanians, and so forth. In Yugoslavia, this is the Slovenes and Croats orientalizing the Bosnians or the Serbs, orientalizing the Turks, and so forth. Basically, though only very generally speaking, when Balkan travel writers go east, they end up orientalizing the place just like Westerners orientalized them. Kurleja begins his journey to Russia in Berlin, where he asks, Where does Europe begin and Asia end? 
that is far from easy to define, he answers. You have to give Kerleja credit because I don't think actually he draws that boundary quite so clearly because he sees also Asia in Berlin, Asia in uh, Vienna, Asia is is in Zagreb on the other side of the railway tracks. You know, the Hotel Esplanade is European, but Asia is just right there next to it. So for him, Europe and Asia do not seem to be fixed to geographical places. Their cultural habits, they float free of being tied down to the ground. It's fascinating. It completely destroys, destabilizes this notion of a clear-cut boundary between East and West. For me, he's very good at this sort of destabilizing maneuver and making you think about, do we have to think about the Balkans or Asia or Europe as being pinned to a place? Is it not a set of cultural habits or a set of assumptions or a set of discourses about dominance and subordination or inferiority, superiority that can appear anywhere? evening approaches, the lanterns of yellow silk interwoven with gold appliques are lit, and waiters in fine tailcoats serve lobster, salmon, candied fruit, and Argentinian peaches that proudly bear the name of an Australian prima donna. And in those illuminated rooms, an arrogant band of apes sits together, boring each other with orations in the name of an imaginary elite about metropolitan worldviews, opinions on religion, politics, art, science, and life's undying values and truths, as if those authentic aristocrats of the spirit had discovered a unique and redeeming elixir of intellect. Wheezing old men, their skin peeling like mummies' wraps, short-sighted masked ladies with golden lorgnettes, bloated red falstaffs among a mob of shabby, experienced whores. All of that is the metropolitan victory of European intellect over squalid plebeian Asia, which drowns in the fetid underground of the big city's trash and gives rise to being both noxious and dangerous from the perspective of the aesthetic elite, just as rat snouts are toxic for the harmony of moneybags yachts. That is Europe, when you stand in galoshes in your warm impermeable, wrapped in rubber, and watch thousands and thousands of anemic beggars wandering the streets in the sleet, and the water gets into their poor proletarian footwear, and you can virtually feel those feet squelching in wet, torn, filthy rags. The European man stands on the rainy Berlin street in the February dusk, in that river of peasant carts and automobiles, poor wretches, burglars and imbeciles, in that torrent of interests and impulses, out in the wind, in the driving snow, amid the Swedish aroma of gasoline and the bleating of women who ply their trade, and he analyzes the aesthetics of it all, of course. Because what choice do untalented ramblers carried along by the current of the big city have other than to reflect in lyrical prose on the transitory nature of the worlds and civilizations that pour down in the universe like rains from the heavens? Now, Kirleja isn't simply documenting his impressions about the place. He goes to Russia to see what the revolution is all about and tell the reader all about it. Like other travel writers, he doesn't just speak to the average Joe, he speaks specifically to the average Yoja back home, the same way the author of Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, Rebecca West, addressed her own compatriots to make points about what they're doing wrong and what the cultures she's visiting are doing right. A great portion of Kirleja's book goes beyond a pure travel account and delves into the politics of the Soviet Union, of Leninism, in almost lecture-like style, travel writing as a political project. Yes, Kerleja is speaking to a Croatian rather bourgeois readership that he despises. He's provoking it, isn't he? The whole title of the book, Islet Urusio, Will Firth translates it as Journey to Russia. But I think of a better translation would be Excursion to Russia, Outing to Russia. You know, who goes on an outing to Russia in the 1920s? He's thumbing his nose at the expectations of, of his readers, and he keeps on doing it. He insists on being an individual. He insists he's not going to go visiting museums or looking at places of high culture. You know, he despises bourgeois tourism where you have to go and, and see the sights. He insists on being interested in the everyday. You know, he quite clearly voices his disgust with his provincial, stagnant, backward Croatia. You know, this is not my view of it. This is Krilich's view of it. And he he sets out to seek models for, for change, just as travel writers from the east of Europe have been doing for ages. But he thumbs his nose again at his readership by not going to look for it in the west. When he goes to Berlin, that's not what he finds. He sets off eastwards to Russia, 
So he's very clearly got in mind a, a particular readership that he wants to shock and maybe shock into doing something. That's a, a, a reasonable observation that most of these travel writers are, are writing back to a, a domestic audience. There is a, a subset of people who are writing in languages of international communication who are trying to do something different, who are trying to reach a, a wider audience for different purposes. But you know, your common or garden travel account written in a, in a local vernacular has a particular audience in mind. And there are lots of things that you can use travel writing to say to a domestic audience. People reading travel accounts that, particularly from the 19th century and maybe the early 20th century, that go to the West and see things that are done better there than they are done at home and lament about it. You know, oh, woe, oh, alas, Look how backward we are compared to this place or that place. That's sometimes been read as a sort of trauma, uh, the effect of coming into contact with modernity from a backward or provincial society. I think we can read it much more strategically as trying to provoke shame in one's domestic readership to get them to do something. It's a very good way of pressing a program of domestic reform, taking Western Europe as a normative model and saying we should be measuring ourselves by those standards. Come on, you know, let us reform our political system. Let us pave some roads. Let us, you know, build a casino or whatever. So I think those sorts of texts can be read much more usefully through that sort of political lens, if you like. That's true of, of lots of travel writers who are not so much simply recording what they see you know, they're not a camera, but they're, they're selecting what they see and shaping it in order to produce a reaction back home. Eight days before Easter, there's a perceptible anxiety in Russian churches. Padlocks are removed from iron-bound medieval gates, dust is wiped from ancient Old Testament golden candlesticks, brooms scratch at Byzantine mosaics. There is a rumbling of pews and the theater of the church prepares for the great Easter gala. Nervousness reigns in private apartments too, as if people are expecting guests. Savory pies and cakes are baked, pashkas made of honey and cheese, floors are washed, carpets beaten, and everything takes on the sour, damp smell of humble cleanliness and poverty. In that festive build-up to Easter, windows puttied up all winter are open for the first time, and people air their rooms through the fortochka, a miniature rectangular window. The pungent smell of Russia leather, fish soup, parquet oil, wet galoshes and boots, stuffy cupboards, dim halls and thick coats of winter dust, all those aromas of human habitation disperse in the icy draft for the first time since the fall. Adults inhale deeply the fresh spring cascades of the climb, children revel in their toys, voices grow on the street, and the pre-Easter restlessness hums in apartments and churches. The beauty of Moscow's churches is gentle, as are the hymns from the dead old times. The triumphal glory of the Russian churches and cathedrals is fading more and more, like a mellow reminiscence of long-since withered flowers pressed in albums. That was a time full of suffering, chaos and evil, when people lit lamps in dark spaces before aromatic mists of frankincense, tore their hair and wailed on their knees to the music of bells and the chanting of indiscernible figures in sorcerers' black robes. The theatrics of Byzantine Tsarist ceremony function through the obscurity and mysteriousness of Greek black magic, as do all sophisticated performances, with purple-black curtains, golden backdrops of iconostasis, the eerie trembling of icon lamps and memorial candles on the wax masks of saints. Beauty as sweet as the rind of celestial spices, as sweet as the violence of the Holy Grail in Wagner's Parsifal. The Russian churches and gods are dying away, the orthodox Olympus is living out its final twilight. Just as the light of icon lamps is extinguished with a ruddy flash, and the dying stage of fall is a burgeoning of bright colors, so too the Russian churches shimmer in dreary richness in the hour of their death. In the gray-yellow, warm spring light, on the muddy brown background with melting snow, when the counterforts and walls of the churches and cathedrals stand out moldy and dirty against the light of day, the pale aquamarine blue rain-washed watercolor hue of the church walls shines like a magic lantern in the fiery colors and playful outlines of strange oriental architecture. All of that is as putrid as an ossuary and as passionate as every deceased past, today still cultural history, but tomorrow a handful of ash and the wind of biblical ephemerality. 
Several moments before the mob swept me into this white-painted church, I had been to see the communist Easter celebration of the Pioneer Club at the Western University. Children, members of the Pioneer Club, staged their own anti-religious demonstration in the form of a ballet, accompanied by a choir and an orchestra. Suspended from Meyerhold's crane, a hundred boys and girls in blue sailor suits rode to the whistle of sirens and the ring of balalaikas, symbolizing a victorious admiral's galley. A large red banner in the bow of the galley bore the words the Eighth Communist Easter, the slogan of this rhythmic choral sculling accompanied by a children's choir. Never, never does a pioneer fall before God. So sailed the admiral's galley crowded full of sailors and blondie, winsome Russian girls, serious pioneers, and dark-skinned children from Azerbaijan and Bukhara. Alongside the blondie Moscow comrades rode little Mongols, Tatars, Latvians, and Germans from the Volga singing, Never, never does a pioneer fall before God. On its atheist voyage on the Russian Easter Eve, the Admiral's Galley, the Eighth Communist Easter, encounters a procession of Orthodox patriarchs, corpulent abbots, monks and nuns carrying relics of saints, frankincense and icons. All the supernumeraries of Tsarist Orthodoxy in the style of Demian Bedny's anti-religious Carmagnol dances. The ballet's action unfolds when the sailors on the Eighth Communist Easter drop anchor, disembark and pursue anti-religious propaganda in the Orthodox procession. And of course there is a happy end. Under the weight of anti-religious arguments, little abbots rip off their grizzled beards, tear apart their archimandrid robes, and throw away the holy paintings and icons, and nuns become sailors, they all embark on the Eighth Communist Easter, and thus the children, united in the apotheosis of atheist victory, hoist their sails for new victorious voyages to the refrain, never, never does a pioneer fall before God. I was quite surprised to discover just how big the Eastern European, and within it Balkan, canon of travel writing is. It's as if it were hiding in plain sight. I wonder why that is. I think there's a couple of reasons going on here, and it needs to bring in the prestige of travel writing as a genre domestically in the country of origin as well. It's not usually a prestigious genre. It's not understood as being particularly literary. There are isolated works that are very important for national literary cultures in the Balkans and in, in all of Eastern Europe that tend to get singled out and studied as particular examples. But the whole mass of travel writing as a whole, even within a national literature, usually hasn't been studied all that well. That's also true in the Anglophone world, that travel writing is only occasionally and for some authors understood as having literary quality. So I think that does have something to do with the number of translations that are available and the particular books that are chosen for translation. But it's also worth think, saying, I think, that, that the importance of travel writing in a national context can wax and wane. Sometimes it's very important, particularly in the 19th century as a sort of nation-building technology traveling around and writing about creating imaginatively your nation, writing about its boundaries, writing about the people who are not members of the nation, writing about sites of memory, writing about landscapes. That is one of the ways in which I think the nation is constructed through travel accounts of that sort. And travel accounts outside as well, you know, traveling beyond the boundaries of the nation so that you know what you are not. That was an important genre in, in the 19th century, and you see that in, in some of the national literatures. I mean, think of Dositeo Bradovic, for example, who is you know that iconic person in Serbian cultural history who goes to the West and discovers enlightenment, even if, to tell the truth, uh, he already had these ideas before he left. But he becomes a sort of icon and everybody knows about him. And he's called by his first name yeah, because of his importance in the, in the literature. That's true elsewhere as well. But it becomes less important as you have other technologies for reproducing the nation. At that point, it becomes a space where it can be used for literary experimentation. Where people who are serious literary writers use the travel account as a place to play around a little bit. I think that may have been what Kurlesha was doing. Dayan Duda, who's written a very interesting 
um, discussion of Karlija, sees him using the travel account in Isla de Rusio to play with the, the notions of literary modernism. But you can see it in other people's writings as well. Because it's not high prestige, you can play an experiment without putting your reputation on the line. Travel writing as a nation-building technology. I like that turn of phrase. But I'm also mainly interested in the period after World War II, in socialist Yugoslavia and beyond. I suppose the easiest way to talk about it is in terms of continuities and discontinuities. So already in the 20th century, there's, there's a strong strain of travel writing as social critique, going especially to the West and not seeing it as a model to be followed, but rather as a horrible example that we ought to be careful about looking at the evils of industrialization or modernization or secularization, proletarianization, urbanization. I mean, you know, I could go on and on uh, saying this is bad and we should avoid it. And you see very much that same strain of social critique and political critique being picked up post-45 and becoming a part of established uh, discourses about the West. And that's true, you know, not just of, of Yugoslavia, but right across socialist Eastern Europe. You only travel to the West in the most strict regimes of, of representation of, of capitalism in order to say how horrible it is and to rip off the veil of false glamour and consumption that capitalism covers itself with. There's quite a, an interesting literature, not frivolous, though into the 70s and 80s, it becomes a bit more lighthearted in its, in its critique in Yugoslavia. But there are other strands as well. There's, the, there's simply the reportage. Travel writing becomes maybe institutionalized as a less subjective form of encounter with the world, where the point is not, you know, how seeing a, a great sight may, may make you feel but what it can tell you about contemporary society. Reportage is maybe the, the best term to use for this. And it takes place not just in travels to, to Western Europe, but travels also within the bloc or, or travels within the non-aligned world. And there's some fascinating reading to be had from Yugoslav travels uh, in the non-aligned world with that sense of both exoticism and fraternal unity, an attempt to, to work together. The continuities that I was thinking about was this, this vein of social criticism, but the, the discontinuities, I think, really have to do with that sort of sense of socialist fraternalism that we see, but also the way in which value signs get reversed in early travel writing in socialist Yugoslavia. Whereas in the past, it might have been, you know, the West was the model and we are the backward ones. Um, it's now our socialism makes us the model for the rest of the world. And, and our leadership of the non-aligned movement uh, makes us a model and our self-management makes us a model. And the West is really falling behind. You could see that simply as a reversal, but I think it's a very interesting discontinuity in the way that travel writing is used for a political project in the post-45 period. Especially with Yugoslavia, you see travel writing, again, becoming a much more open space for writers. It loses its role as important, you know, socially committed reportage, I think maybe in the 70s, early 80s. And again, it opens up as a space for lots of different things. And you see people, particularly people who are writers or people who are prominent in other fields, using travel writing as a way of saying something that they maybe couldn't say in their professional lives or that they could use as a space to experiment a little bit with. I have in mind in particular a couple of the people out of the anthology who, who produce some really interesting travel accounts, but I wouldn't think of them primarily as travel writers. So Ivan Kushan, who is primarily known for his children's books, writes a really interesting account, semi-autobiographical 
it's presented hovering on the boundary between autobiography and fiction, which the publisher Znanya in Zagreb had a wonderful term for globetrotterotica. So it's all about his sexual experiences and the way in which he's reworking the trope of Western superiority and Eastern inferiority through his intimate encounters with people, with women across Europe and America. It's really very interestingly done, maybe a little bit icky. You said a couple. Who was the other person? Milica Micic-Dimovska, who's a writer, well-known, writes a really interesting account in 1989 when, when Yugoslavia is starting to feel as though it's really falling apart, which takes the pillars of Yugoslav self-esteem, you know, the ability to travel abroad, prosperity, superiority to, you know, those Eastern cousins in the rest of the socialist bloc, and tears them apart. She goes, she describes going on a effectively a smuggling trip across the border to Czechoslovakia and to Vienna with eight kilos of vegeta that she wants to flog off with all her, her companions doing the same thing uh, in order to get not even just Western currency in Vienna, but even you know, check crowns so that they can buy material goods that they can no longer get in Yugoslavia in the conditions of economic chaos. She does a really wonderful job of that. It's a fascinating little text. I suppose another person would be Alexander Tishma, who is a serious novelist, but who writes a series of short travel accounts, including one called Meridians of Central Europe, that he publishes in the 80s uh, in a journal and then and then collected all together with, a, with other travel accounts, which well before the issue of Central Europe was becoming a hot topic with people like Kundera or others in the West, he is analyzing the notion of what Central Europe means to him through the experiences of traveling through Hungary and Poland and then Vienna in a very personal and autobiographical way, rather different from his, his usual writings. Alexander Tishma, who died in 2003, was the father of Andrei Tishma, the male artist you heard in episode 31, The Last World of Yugoslav Male Art. That's male as in postal male. One other person you called out by name in our communication was Borivoj Radakovic. What about him? If you wanted to talk about more recent travel writers, he's a great example, and I think also maybe Vesna Biga. Borivoj Radakovic does some wonderful accounts of uh, traveling to, to England. He's friends with uh, Tony White, who himself wrote a terrific travel account of the Balkans called Another Fool in the Balkans, sending himself up a little bit. And Radakovic, in his one semi-autobiographical novel and one straight-down-the-road collection of, of travel accounts, does this great post-punk refusal to take the world seriously, a certain amount of play with what the notion of, of the West means to him, some of which is, is relatively familiar. He plays around a lot with the notions of, of his Balkan inferiority, but basically also shows us um, himself having a riotous good time as a, as a football fan and taking apart football culture. It's fascinating work. Fascinating for its sheer physical enjoyment of the world. All of that said, travel writing has actually been in decline in recent years, particularly in the U.S. Last year, the publisher of the Best American Travel Writing Compendium announced 2021 would be the annual anthology's final volume. The move is based not on a drop in travel writing's quality or even quantity, but rather its increasing inability to attract a large audience, wrote Thomas Swick at Literary Hub. Charges of neocolonialism and cultural appropriation delivered one major blow. Ironically, just as authors from communities marginalized in the travel writing genre, black writers, women, writers from South Asia or Central and Eastern Europe, were on the ascendant. But, continues Swick, a greater contributor to travel writing's drop in popularity is of course the internet, that infinite, ever-expanding archive of everything. Google your destination, and it appears on your screen, in words and pictures. Who needs travel writers, one might ask, when hundreds of bloggers are typing their findings, thousands of tourists are posting their videos, millions of vacationers are sending their tweets? The biggest contributor to the decline in travel writing, concludes Swick, is the decades-long trend of America turning inward. 
The general feeling among publishers is that most people would rather identify with what they read than learn about something outside their own experience. And in a country where less than half of the population owns a passport, this means concentrating on the personal and the parochial. Hence, memoir has eclipsed travel writing. I ask Professor Bracewell what she thinks about travel writing as a genre today. It seems to me to have become a much, much less important vehicle for talking to a wide audience. It seems to have much less social oomph behind it. I wouldn't want to generalize too far, but the things that I have seen have been relatively trivial touristic rather than people using travel as a means of coming to grips with what is happening to themselves and to their countries and to the world. I think that's true of, of the Balkans. I will be delighted if you can come up with examples that I should read that will show me differently. But I think that's also true of Western travel writing at the moment. I think there was a real interest in using it maybe 10, 15 years ago that has somewhat waned. And maybe it's in the face of the kind of literary and political analysis that it's been subjected to. People are maybe a little more hesitant and uncomfortable about using travel writing because they know they will be caught up short. <laughs> and it is in fact in memoirs by two Balkan authors, incidentally both Bosnian refugees, that I found great recent examples of travel writing. In her debut book, Bluebird, Vesna Maric documents her journey from Mostar, Bosnia and Herzegovina, to England. And The Bosnia List, a memoir of war, exile, and return, is an account Kenan Trebinčević wrote about his and his family surviving in, fleeing from, and going back to his hometown, Brčko. A chapter from the book made it to the 2012 edition of the Best American Travel Writing. And finally, there's Anja Mutic. You may remember her from that year-ago episode on travel writing about Yugoslavia. Now, I rarely repeat myself on the podcast, but in this case, I'll make an exception. A travel writer raised in war-torn Yugoslavia goes back to search for her lost country two decades after it fell apart, goes the teaser of Mutic's wonderful 2018 article at BBC Travel. She was born in Croatia in 1973, grew up in Zagreb, and had what she described as a perfectly normal childhood. Except perhaps that her father was a legendary sports journalist who took the family on some of the work trips. While her friends were shopping in Trieste, Mutic went traveling in Yugoslavia and abroad. She told me, traveling was the biggest gift my parents could give us, their children. Mutic left Croatia in 1991, right out of high school, after the war started there. I come from a country that no longer exists, she writes. She lived in the UK and the US. Almost naturally, she got into guidebook writing. She and Vesna Maric were co-workers at Lonely Planet. And then freelance travel writing for the likes of Nat Geo Travel and New York Times. Since I left, I had this wanderlust and restlessness. I've never felt I belong anywhere, she told me. In 2011, she took a six-week trip around a former Yugoslavia. In the article, she writes, Having lived and traveled all over the world, I knew I hadn't made peace with leaving. It had felt like suddenly, overnight, somebody pulled out the carpet from under my feet, and I had nothing to stand on. All I had to balance on was a mishmash of memories of this almost mythical country, some of which I wasn't even sure were real. Then an idea came to me one snowy evening in my Brooklyn apartment. I would retrace the borders of my former homeland. I wasn't interested in diving into the politics of the past. I wanted to capture the emotion that the lost country and its demise left on its people and on me. Mutic spent a week in each former Yugoslav Republic and met people for coffee, listening to their stories. A traveling therapist, she called herself. Throughout the trip, she writes, I harbored hope that along the way somebody would say one thing that would crystallize it all, my own life of rootless drifting and the vicious and slow death of Yugoslavia that left an entire generation with a lingering feeling of displacement. I knew I was not alone in feeling lost, but I had to understand how others processed the same collective experience we had as a fragmented nation. Surely someone would say that one-line kicker I was after with all the small wisdoms woven into it. I would set my eyes on a street, a village, or a forest clearing, and all would click into place. I would finally get permission to move on. None of that happened, but something else did. She came to terms with the lack of belonging and discovered it was in fact a source of creative inspiration for her. The trip ended up being kind of therapy, she told me. She accepted that, quote, Home is a shapeshift thing, belonging is just as elusive, and the country that raised me is an imaginary land that once was and is no more, except in our collective memory. And sometimes a journey is just that, a journey, back to where you began, end quote. 
It was so long ago the trip and the article Mutic told me in 2019. That's not to say I'm not going to pick it up again, I'm open to all possibilities. Maybe we all have one big life project we have to put out and maybe this is mine. And maybe it's just my therapy. Meanwhile, Mutic's compatriot Miroslav Kleža is sitting in the park surrounding the Institute of Chemistry in Moscow pondering, well, all kinds of things. All of us suffer from the illusion that we can depart our old, squalid harbors with their stagnant garbage water for a place far, far away, where bright horizons of space are open to us and where everything is crystal clear and sunny. All of us like to believe there exists such a serene land, where we might put ashore and cleanse ourselves of our life's fogs and burdens. In our sad age fraught with political troubles, Europeans delude themselves with a romantic yearning for unknown tropical lands, as if India today were not a political penitentiary and industrialized prison like Europe. Or as if the streets of China were not aflow with blood, and as if Asian bankers and feudal lords did not puff on thick cigars while overseeing armies of living corpses, emaciated workers who sell their skin by the same laws as the wage slaves in the mills and foundries of Chernomerets, Potsuset and Trbovle. All of this happens on one extremely small globe, and the time has come for people to take this shiny little planet into their hands and cleanse it of blood, suffering and misery. All the yearnings to put ashore on happier continents belongs to a prehistoric mental epoch, the pre-Leninist stage before the discovery of the sixth continent, the USSR. So it was that in my mind, a bast in the February sun on Baroshke in Rijeka, looking at sailors dirty washing on a grey Italian warship and yearning for the sixth continent in that vision of the south. The bells of Rijeka's trams rang faintly in the distance, and a dark orange sail slowly glided out from Brajdica harbor in the spring silence beneath the green copper dome of Rijeka's theater. It was spring, but I longed for the northern sixth continent, the USSR. And here now in the land of wolves and samovars, having really put ashore on that sixth continent, I started to pine uncontrollably for the real, authentic, ideal, clean spring of the Kvarner Gulf. How very puerile, how preposterous and whimsical. Here I sit in the garden of the Institute of Chemistry, watching Moscow in the sunlight with its gas holders, factory fences, chimneys, new buildings and scaffolding. The sound of a brass band comes on the wind from afar, strains of the Rakotsi march, and in that instant the city strikes me as a metropolis, like all big cities on this civilized, poverty-stricken planet. People are tired after work, throw copper coins into orchestrions, snack on dry rolls, drink vodka and the landscape is joyless, yellow and sandy. But here, in the middle of the park, stands the Institute of Chemistry with its test tubes and bright sunny linoleum-clad corridors, all washed and shiny clean as the scientific institutes of the 20th century are. Large engraved slabs of marble bear the gold letter names of Mendeleev, Lomonosov and Mechnikov, and everything is defined and clearly classified under its own number and formula in showcases and processed in tables. Humans are extremely clever creatures, and just as they have ordered, listed and classified everything in this institute of chemistry, so too they will order, list and classify everything else that calls for it all over the world. Export and import will be brought into balance, and all the statistical tables will be a thousand times richer and more impressive than today. There will no longer be wars or premature deaths, nor British pounds or American dollars, nor the ruinous magnetic games of the great powers. But in the shadow of the most exact scientific insights, there will still be confused and capricious folk who secretly listen to the wind buffeting the branches before the coming of spring. They will be the shame and disgrace of the institutes of chemistry, but obliviously they will listen to the grass growing in the garden beds and the wind whispering to the cherry blossom. Those crazy characters will contemplate the chirping of the sparrows and the flight of clouds with attentiveness worthy of respect. They will sense the sorrow of spring, conscious that people are enchanters of serenity, of deep blue perspectives in the noon of spring. Which means nothing other than an enchanting torrent of images and impressions, a cascade of colors, smells and sounds which plunge roaring into nothingness. People move like an avalanche of colors, smells and sounds, and their yearning is just one of the innocent illusions that events have some semblance of meaning. Both Vesna Maric and Anja Mucic found that writing about a country in Central Eastern Europe would corner them into a niche that's too narrow for commercial success. 
If the market for travel writing is shrinking, the stall that Balkan or Central Eastern European writers occupy is shrinking with it. And the little kerchief on the ground filled with accounts of Balkanites writing about traveling in their own countries is becoming a postage stamp pushed way to the back where few people venture. Part of it has to do with peace. If it bleeds, it leads applies to travel writing too. And it's no surprise that the two books by Bosnian authors I mentioned both involve fleeing the war and dealing with its aftermath. Peace is the equivalent of good news. No one wants to see that. Perhaps another piece of this has to do with geography and opportunity cost. We're all interested in different places in the world. If you want to read about my travels in the former Yugoslavia, great. I'll have a book to sell you at some point. But that won't make the guy writing about his travels in the Yukon happy at all. Maybe I'm being cynical. But hey, it gets quite cold in the Yukon. Next on Remembering Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was such an exceptional place of socialism where women had so much emancipatory power. Yugoslavenka, a Yugoslav woman, is a famous song by Lepa Brena and a starting point for a story of Yugoslav women's emancipation through art. On the next episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, Yasmina Tumbas and the Yugoslavenkas among us. And a book giveaway too. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information and the transcript of this episode at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. And don't forget, Remembering Yugoslavia's travel fund is always open for contributions. Come along. Visit rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate to chip in today. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petrich. Additional music by Ketza and Petar Argic, licensed under Creative Commons. Special thanks to VK for the no copyright Russian instrumentals. I am Petar Korchniak. Sretan put! Thank you.